want the Republicans to wake up is the Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Uh, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. Welcome to a new edition of the Peter B. Collins Show, coming your way from San Francisco, where spring is springing. I ask you to share this program with a friend. Just send a link to PeterBCollins.com to somebody with your personal recommendation and help us spread the word and grow the audience of this program. I want to thank Patricia Smith, Bill Lackamacher, and Joseph Piper. They are regular, voluntary subscribers to the Peter B. Collins Show. You can do it, too, for as little as 5 bucks a month. Just go to my website, PeterBCollins.com, and the link over there on the right side says you can help. In the second half of this podcast, John Stauber returns. He's a great American, former executive director of the Center for Media and Democracy in that hotbed of liberalism, Madison, Wisconsin. He's retired from there now, but hasn't stopped his activism. His latest effort is to stop, uh, well, something going on right here in my backyard. In fact, I can smell it from here. The city of San Francisco is giving away free compost. Only it's from toxic sludge from sewage treatment plants. And John Stauber is trying to uh, stop that program and only give away clean sludge. And he's gotten on the other side of this battle with the doyen of the green food, organic food, slow food movement, Alice Waters. That's coming up. But first, we're going to talk to Professor David Coates about his newly released book, Answering Back, Liberal Responses to Conservative Arguments. But first, a little music to set the tone from Roy Zimmerman and the Four Men. to the right. Take a definite position. I want health care reform. Total turnabout. Total With the help of pharma and big med. The media see how good they'll be to you. Everybody do the Clinton. Now that song is uh, 15 years old now, but uh, I submit that Barack Obama has been doing the Clinton even better than Clinton. And if you recall, when Bill Clinton took office, health care reform was his big signature issue from the campaign. And he put Hillary in charge of it, and the whole thing blew up. And so the Obama effort was built on not repeating the mistakes of the Hillary Clinton effort. 
but they didn't expect that uh, Harry and Louise would be replaced by Sarah and the Teabaggers. David Coates, welcome back to our program. Very nice to be with you. Professor Coates is the Worrell Professor of Anglo-American Studies at Wake Forest University. Their Department of Political Science, as I mentioned, his newest book is Answering Back, Liberal Responses to Conservative Arguments. He was kind enough to serve as our unpaid correspondent from the U.K. on a recent podcast about the upcoming elections for prime minister and uh, the new parliament there in Britain. And, uh, David, I wanted to focus on Chapter 6 of your book uh, about the health care debate. And let me start with a stinging indictment. I believe that you are guilty of rational thinking. And that you have studiously prepared in this particular chapter, and it's replicated on other issues in the book, liberal responses to conservative arguments as if these were conducted in rational, incoherent manners. And I think that this is the signature mistake that the Obama administration made in year one on the health insurance reform. And it's, it's just uh, stunning to me that a team that ran such an error-free campaign that really gauged the mood of the American public and got them to project their aspirations on Barack Obama as kind of a blank screen, as he has acknowledged, uh, that they bungled it so badly. And, uh, you know, I, I hope you take no offense at my approach, but no. um, it, the, the hard part for me is that there, there's very little rational discussion or debate going on. Uh, clearly, the Obama team did not expect the Republicans to hang tough in their obstructionist mode. And so isn't your premise here fundamentally not, not flawed from an intellectual or academic point of view, but inoperative because of the tactics used by the opposition. Well, the, the, that obviously has two sides to it. There's a conversation we need to have about Obama's tactics in the first year. Well, I think we would have a very high level of agreement. There were terrible mistakes made. But I think that that's predicated on something else other than the basis of rational argument. My sense in relation to answering back is that we have to fight the political battles at the level of the quick soundbite and uh, uh, bouncing back against their nonsense and so on. But because we are interested in progressive change, and progressive change involves complex alterations in the social and economic, uh, economic order, we also need to do our own homework, have our own arguments together, talk to each other about what is going on and what is necessary. It's almost like an iceberg. You know, you, the politics goes on at the very top of the thing, but underneath it, we need some pretty coherent intellectual stuff to make sure that when we do go up to the top and fight, we're as well equipped as we can. And I think when you do that, what's striking about the American population as a whole is if we can get to the floating middle, we can pull more people towards us by the force of our arguments if our arguments are strong. We'll never, of course, get to the Republicans and the Tea Party people, but for the moment they're having far too strong an impact framing the debate, and we've got to be able to come back and say to them, well, your framing is wrong because your argument is wrong, and here are the counter-arguments. And that's what Chapter 6 was, you know, of course, attempting to do, just to put material into the hands of fighting progressives to make sure they got a slightly sharper edge to their sword when they went out to do battle. Um, and that's quite separate, I think, from what Obama did in his first year, which is, mm-hmm. as I say, well disappointing. But, but you and I can uh, logically disprove, for example, the death panel allegation that was delivered in a news conference at Facebook by Sarah Palin. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, and, and, you know, I dismiss that. It, it's, it's ridiculous and absurd 
that this woman who resigned after half a term as governor of Alaska, she's made $12 million now cashing in on that. I mean, that's lipstick on uh, something. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, she is taken seriously, propelled by the media, and the nonsense that she puts out there, which has been refuted by people like you and me many times, it lives on. And it, it is given license and currency by the media um, because they're just looking for a mud fight or a food fight. Uh, they, don't, they don't really care um, about progressive approaches to issues, about the sorry state of our health care system. And, and so we've got a real disconnect here, David. And, and how do we retether um, uh, our political debates to reality and rational argument? Because that's, that's what's really uh, where, where things have gone askew here. Yeah, well, I'm, I, there's certainly a huge asymmetry, is there not, in the capacity of the right and the left to get their message out into contemporary America. And the right has taken this whole business of a noise machine very, very seriously for a long time. So Fox News is there, Limbo's there, Beck's there. These people have got, in Beck's case, a couple of million people watching him every night. And my sense is if you do, if the, the people watching him become progressively more stupid, more frightened, more misled day after day, and we see that, and that feeds into the Tea Party thing. What we've got to do is a counter-move. Now, you're part of that counter-move, of course. That's the importance of this program. And the first thing we have to do is actually to consolidate ourselves with strong arguments that, that we can then carry forward. But we also do need our own very powerful media outlets, and we need our own political leadership to kind of get the counter view into full play. And that, I think, is where Obama's first year was such a mistake, because it was a very muted presentation of a progressive case, because they were forever pursuing this elusive 60 majority through this very, very conservative Senate. At least, I mean, I personally think we probably benefited from losing the seat in Massachusetts, because it took that whole strategy off the agenda. And it did give us an opportunity to get a slightly sharper leadership from the White House on the health bill issue. What we need to do now is make sure that goes on on all the other things we care about. And unless we can keep the pressure off, I don't think it will. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I guess where we certainly do agree here, David, is that um, the Obama team uh, really fumbled this because they knew Ted Kennedy was sick. Uh, he, he was lucky to make it to Obama's inauguration. And so they knew how fragile that was with the flip of uh, Arlen Specter. I mean, <laughs> that, that's uh, hardly a reliable Democratic vote. Uh, Lieberman uh, was a, a problem child all along the way. And then we had these conservative Democrats in the Senate, the, uh, the, the Nelson brothers, who aren't brothers, but they, they think uh, and vote like they could be. Um, and, uh, you know, then, then you got Max Baucus, who they put in charge of this who's all tanked up on uh, contributions from the industries he was attempting to regulate, and uh, the evisceration of single-payer as even a, a consideration uh, from the start alienated a lot of activists in the progressive base who might have been useful uh, in, in rallying these wayward Democrats and really getting something done. And, and then finally, you know, my real blistering criticism is that they uh, didn't have a bill by August when the recess hit, and that, of course, at the culmination of the recess was when Ted Kennedy passed away. Uh, and, and so the Republicans just had a field day during the August recess of throwing up death panels and socialism and Lenin and Trotsky, and, I, I mean, it became bizarre, uh, more bizarre each day. Uh, but uh, fundamentally... 
uh, Obama did not have control of what passed for the debate. No, well, all that's true. I, we all both watched it and were driven crazy by it, I think, both of us together. But the, the basic problem which, to which that was a response was the inability of Obama, the candidate, to deliver a Congress that was as progressive as his rhetoric. I mean, the Democratic Party is a very complicated and in many areas very conservative animal. I mean, we have Shula up in the mountains here, who is a Democrat, part of the majority, but actually is a deeply conservative person in a deeply Republican area. He, he lives, he lives at C Street. He's one of the C Street guys, right? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. yes. I, mean, so, I mean, the place is riddled with conservatives. And so they, they won on paper, but they didn't have the political coalition in the Senate in particular, but also on certain issues as we saw, particularly in reproductive rights in the House as well, to get major legislation through. And then, of course, you also have this terrific strategic choice to make. Do you then go for broke and fail and hope that in the failure you can rekindle your own base to such an extent that you come back in the midterm and get the people in that you need? Or do you try and weave your way through with backroom deals and get something through on, against which later you can then uh, base a second round. And I think that second procedure was taken, coming as I do, as you know, from the United Kingdom long ago, where you had parliamentary government, and if you get somebody elected, the whole party's disciplined and loyal, and you get the program you promised at the beginning. We don't do it that way here. We get portmanteau bills full of pork, and we've got all these independent legislators, everyone which seems to have an incredibly personal ego, and they've got to be herded together like cats to get anything done. Now, as a herding device, I think Obama did really well. But, of course, for the people in the progressive base who wanted a single-payer system like me, it was, it was compromised from the start by that being beyond his capacity to deliver. So why fight it? Mm-hmm. I think we saw that happening. And it's going to go on until we get a series of progressive Democrats elected to replace conservative Democrats. We're always going to have this dilemma. But, but let's talk about this point you just made there about, um, you know, beyond Obama's reach. Because this is where I think he failed to lead. And he had the political capital going in, and there's no question that it was dissipated by the uh, the, the mess that Bush left yeah. behind in terms of the economy and the bailouts. And I don't support a lot of what Obama did in that respect. But um, given the clear mandate that he had regarding health care, uh, if he had offered leadership... And instead of this process of watching the Senate uh, try to produce a bill and then watching the House uh, uh, produce a separate bill, I mean, at one point there were five separate pieces of legislation. And it was dizzying for the average American and, again, a great opportunity for the uh, noise machine on the right, which deals in oversimplifications uh, uh, very effectively, You know, they they just allowed this to spiral out of control. And it wasn't until um, almost March of this year, it was February, when Obama finally defined what he wanted in a bill. And he played uh, above the fray, tried to remain in the center, while Rahm Emanuel is cutting stinky deals with pharma, and I was pleased that Billy Towson lost his job despite that, and, and with the big HMOs. And so it, it became very clear that um, their idea of packaging change was to preserve and extend the status quo and the corporate control of uh, both health insurance and health care delivery. 
And so, you know, my feeling is that had he been really bold and stated his desired program early in the process and then really whipped um, the Democratic members, including the recalcitrant conservatives, uh, into supporting the president's bill, um, that they would have had a much better shot at a more progressive package. And I, I don't think we would have gotten a pure single payer but we would have, I think, seen an expansion of Medicare uh, to younger age groups and other ways of allowing states to uh, develop single-payer plans. And instead, uh, we ended up with a bill that I think uh, is quite an albatross and that the very mandates that Obama opposed as a candidate, uh, I don't think they're unconstitutional and I don't oppose them personally. But I think the right is going to have a field day in upcoming elections, <clears throat> as this starts to phase in, uh, saying, you know, the Democrats are the ones who forced you to buy health care. This phrase of cramming it down our throats uh, continues to be used by the right. Well, <laughs> let me say, first of all, that, of course, it, it, it's always an uphill battle in this political system for progressive programs to get through, because this entire constitutional structure was designed to block change. Uh, and in that sense, it doesn't surprise me as so much as it frustrates you that you only get these breakthroughs every now and then, you know, and they normally come fairly tarnished. That would be the first thing I'd say. Mm -hmm. The same thing, of course, is that bit about Bush's legacy. It's significant when you look back. I mean, they were battling with TARP and with the, the whole banking crisis the first couple of months, and it does look as though this is a political system that can only handle one big issue at a time, and that's one of its fundamental conservative biases. I think. And of course, as you know, Obama did not come in promising a single-payer system. I mean, uh, he didn't even come in promising to make an individual mandate. He came in as much more moderate even than Hillary Clinton on this particular one. But I do agree with you, if he had moved earlier and harder, then we would have got a, uh, a much stronger public option, I'm sure, which is desperately what we needed. And also we got, would get Medicare extended, as you say. The problem, I think, for all of us now is how we respond to what we've got. I mean, it's quite clear to me, if you go and look at the best of the European healthcare systems, the German and the French, they are based on insurance. A single-payer system, the kind I know very well, is not the only way you can run a very progressive healthcare system. But you do have to discipline your insurance companies in a very serious way. Now, they've begun to put little constraints on the insurance companies, but if they, the tighter they go, the more resistance they're going to get. And what we've got to decide now is do we defend this bill as it comes under attack from the Republicans, which I think I would want to do for all its limits, or whether we go with them and say it needs to be scrapped and done away with, and which I think probably many people who are very frustrated by might be tempted to do. Mm -hmm. David, let me turn now to broader issues related to the Obama administration and liberals, progressives, whatever we care to call ourselves, because I think he has really splintered the coalition that he built to get elected, and I'm not sure he can put it back together in time to win a second term. Now, my caveat is that if Sarah Palin is the Republican nominee, uh, he, he could uh, squeeze through. Uh, but purely uh, based on the coalition that elected him in 2008, um, the bailouts alienated a certain group of independents uh, and some progressives like me. Um, the uh, continuation of Bush policies on wiretapping and other civil liberties issues, the renewal of the Patriot Act that was quietly accomplished while we were all uh, distracted over the uh, health insurance debate. Um, 
and the expansion of the war in Afghanistan. These are all issues that will make it very difficult uh, this November uh, to uh, maintain a majority in the House. I think uh, it's likely they will keep the speakership in the House, but it's very clear that Senate seats are likely to be lost. And uh, so how do we try to uh, suck it up here and uh, coalesce around a fractured uh, administration uh, when it comes to the policies that uh, progressives uh, rallied around in 2008? Yeah. Well, I'm sure it was, a, it was a very fragile coalition, and it was partly put together, wasn't it, on a complete antipathy to the Bush-Cheney people. So you were kind of looking to this guy to just solve everything or be whatever we all imagined him to be, when in fact it turns out that he's a highly conservative character in the main, locked in with the liberal wing of corporate capital, and therefore some of the stuff that they're up, up to now just doesn't cut uh, ice with so many of us. I, I'm sure the second time around, if there is an Obama vote, it'll be for fear of the alternative, not because of the enthusiasm for the project. I think that's a huge loss that will be very, very difficult to repeat amongst young voters in particular, the kind of enthusiasm that, that swept even North Carolina into his uh, into his side of the uh, of the of the vote you know into in 2008 i mean there are a number of really huge things they've got to deal with they've got to deal with the immigration issue consolidate the latino vote they've got to do at least an elizabeth warren on the foreclosure crisis which is hitting so many americans now and they have got to do something to get job creation speeded up by direct intervention they're doing none of those things I think the treasury is a disaster area in this administration uh, and all i and i can see no possibility myself of a scenario in November other than the one you described. What I hope will then happen is that people will be sufficiently shocked by that in the administration to start realizing that certain things need to be corrected and corrected quickly in 2011. Otherwise, they could, we could go down to defeat. And, 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 right, and right, let me, let right me... now, we think Sarah Palin's a threat, but the terrifying thing is Sarah Palin may become the framer of the debate, you know, and mm-hmm. God forbid we should have Sarah Palin in the White House. So there's an enormous amount of stake here, and they're wasting a golden opportunity in so many critical ways. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of my frustrations, David, is that every time uh, there is a setback for Democrats, the Rahm Emanuel types uh, say that the answer is to move to the right. And, you know, in, in all of the statistics that are out, like right now there's a, a poll that shows that somewhere between 55 and 60 percent of Americans are not happy or satisfied with the health care package that ultimately was adopted. But what that doesn't say is that uh, fully, you know, I think a third to a half of those who uh, say they're not satisfied are people like me who wanted more, not people who wanted nothing. And yet, um, again, the the corporate media in this country doesn't do a good job of really parsing those issues. They just flash the numbers up there. They try to ride the wave of anger to uh, higher ratings. And, you know, I I doubt that that anger is real to begin with. I I think there are more angry people on the left than there are on the right. (laughs) It's just that the ones on the right are out there with corporate support for their their Tea Party bus tours. We don't spit at people. I mean, that's a big difference, and there's no news value in our anger. Yeah. Genuinely the problem. And in the absence of a strong labor movement, a strong social movement, it's really hard to build a grassroots kind of campaign that can put the media to bed or force them to change. I do think that's an important part of what we have to do, I mean, long-term, is to equip ourselves. 
to the arguments in the programs that will actually mobilize enthusiasm again. I mean, Obama had it. I don't think it's totally dissipated yet, but it's certainly going down pretty fast, isn't it? And the question is, what lessons are they going to take from the health care debate? Will they start promising a second round of reform, which I certainly hope they will? And will they recognize that, th- that if they're not going to lose in November, they've got to turn seriously to the Latino issue? That I doubt they will. You know, I think they, actually got, they, they seem only capable of thinking about bank regulation now, and the bank regulation that they're thinking about is relatively moderate. So again, you know, we're in this position where there's a great problem to be solved. There's a left-wing constituency out in America waiting for the solution. And, and, our, and the Obama people are playing conservative. It's very, very frustrating. Well, and David, immigration is another issue where rational arguments will not carry the day. Well, it depends which rational arguments you use. I think every time I talk to somebody, um, I'm <laughs> sure you use the same. <laughs> if only other politeness they come. I mean, because it's just not true. Half the things that are being said are just not true, and you've got that massively immediately accessible data that will demonstrate that it is not so. Um, and that, you know, in the vast majority of cases, there's no relationship between immigration and wages or immigration and unemployment. The causes of unemployment right now have nothing to do with the migration of you know seven or twelve million. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Latino workers, and if you keep saying that to people and, and give them the data, they've got to concede the case. It's just that getting to enough people is the problem, which is your media issue all over again. Well, and again, the media uh, gives equal time to a rational argument and then the irrational response. And it is the irrational response which I think carries the emotional cord that most viewers will then pick up on. And, uh, you know, they've been doing this successfully by anecdote. Uh, you, can, you can marshal all the PowerPoint you want with the, the facts about employment and uh, the actual contributions of undocumented workers in this country. But people have an emotional belief uh, that uh, they don't belong here. They're taking my kid's uh, slot in a university. I, I mean, it... it it, it is just so emotional and racist uh, in its base that it's, it's, again, very difficult to unravel with, uh, with rational argument. I, I, yes, I do accept that. I mean, it's it just that we're pushing against the tide. We're pushing against the tide of inherited racism. We're pushing against the tide of a major recession where the vast majority of people are scared to death about losing their jobs and feeling terrific financial pressure. And so, you know, illegal immigrants become an obvious scapegoat on which the right can build very quickly. My sense is that there are, there are lots of people out there who, who see through all that. I mean, 200,000 of them gathered in Washington the day the health care bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we're not without our army, uh, and the, the information that we have at our disposal helps to reinforce our case. What we do need is a leadership on this issue that gets national attention, and that's Obama's responsibility. At the minute, we have the biggest single bully uh, uh, site, you know, the, what do you call it? You know, bully pulpit. Speak, but thank, bully, but thank you. Mm-hmm. Went the moment, bully pulpit, thank you. If Obama chooses to use it. Now, you know, I don't, I don't well, fly on the wall, but my sense was it was Nancy Pelosi who got him to get up and fight on the health care thing. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to get him to get fight on the, uh, the immigration one as well. And I seriously don't understand why they don't do that, because... If they don't get a very large Hispanic vote behind them, then they will not be in power for very long. Now, David, uh, before we go, I want to ask you prospectively to help my listeners gear up for the inevitable debate that will occur over the next Supreme Court nominee. Mm -hmm. 
And the Republicans have already staked out their talking points, uh, even though there's no nominee named. Uh, they're ready to filibuster, and, uh, you know, they don't want some activist judge unless uh, he or she's a right-wing activist. Um, and uh, this is a, a, another defining moment for Obama. I'd love to see him pull a bush and say, uh, you can filibuster all you want, guys. Um, I have the right to name a qualified appointee uh, to the Supreme Court, and you can't derail it. Take a look at Alito and Roberts. Uh, we held our noses and let those nominees go, go on the court. Uh, Bush just bullied the Senate into confirming them. Uh, but we don't, we don't see that as a likely potential, do we? I sometimes say when I, you and I are talking on the telephone, you should ask the questions and answer them at the same time. <laughs> everything you say is absolutely right. That's exactly what he's got to do. You know? And we should be writing to every one of our uh, Democratic uh, uh, representatives to, to put that, make that absolutely clear, because there is no issue long-term more important than this one. The Supreme Court, I'm afraid, we have to live with forever, don't we? These people yeah. last forever and they never die. And the, and the minute the balance is so terribly against us, so we cannot afford to have it tilted further. This is a, this is a, should be a non-negotiable issue for the Obama administration. I need to put somebody in who, after all, uh, seems is not that liberal. We just have to be the court move so far to the right. We've got we mustn't chase it. We absolutely mustn't chase it. And this is a this is a, this will be an unforgivable political error if the if the Rahm Emanuel philosophy prevails on this one. Uh, I just hope enough people are saying that and are writing about that. Perhaps we should all do so immediately this program is over, just to kind of get the message across. Well, I put up a blog post a week or two ago that uh, this is a moment where we have to look at the Harriet Myers nomination. <laughs> it, <laughs> it was scuttled by members of the president's own party. And if Obama appoints a pro-corporate a pro-executive power uh, candidate to the Supreme Court, then I think we need to make a big pushback and say, Mr. President, respectfully, uh, this is not the change we sought, and you've got to really put some spine in it and choose a nominee who reflects uh, the need to rebalance the court uh, after uh, being packed with moderates and right-wingers for so long, and the need to address your base. Yeah. I mean, the, the political problem we have, the biggest single one, is we face a Republican Party that is ideologically coherent and therefore disciplined. You're trying to use a Democratic Party that's neither of those things. And our wing of the Democratic Party, that's what we're still, the politics we're still playing, is, is a, a, a minority element, or at least it does not have an, an overall hegemonic presence in the party. So we're always going to have to fight inside the party and against the Republicans at the same time. And on an issue like this, inside the party, we have to fight. I mean, this is just, there has to be no bipartisanship or compromise on this one. It's better that they don't fill the post and that they fill it with somebody over the next 30 years will guarantee that, uh, the, 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 that every time we do something successfully, progressively, it's declared unconstitutional. We just can't get ourselves into that situation. 
Amen. David Coates. Thank you for joining me today, and uh, I apologize for answering all my own questions. No, you're wonderful. This is marvelous. Makes <laughs> <laughs> my job so easy. No, it's something I need to work on, but... Uh, no, no, it isn't. I get don't, don't, I get, don't change it all. I get caught up in the argument and uh, love to advance it. The book is Answering Back. It's out in softcover, uh, subtitle Liberal Responses to Conservative Arguments. And uh, on the website with the show information, I will include the address at uh, uh, for David Coates' blog, because uh, it's a long one and you won't catch it if I read it to you. He does have a website at davidcoates.net, spell Coates, C-O-A-T-E-S. Professor, thanks for your time today. Thank you very much, Peter. And the Peter B. Collins Show continues, sponsored by the Organic Wine Company. Now that you're eating organic, it's time to drink organic. Try the fine earth-friendly wines imported by the Organic Wine Company since 1980, and they use French compost, by the way. Click on the link on my homepage for a special bargain. As an aging hipster, I often find out about cool music a little after the hip-hop nation. And that was the case with OutKast, and at the discount record store, I purchased this two-CD set. And I've been looking for the opportunity to use this song, Roses, as a theme. And John Stauber has provided it. Listen up here. This story is set in San Francisco, and the greener-than-thou community. John Stauber is a longtime activist based in Madison, Wisconsin. Among other things, he's written the book Toxic Sludge is Good for You. He's a member of the advisory board of the Organic Consumers Association. And, John, we are liberated from the language restrictions of the Federal Communications Commission. So feel free to speak freely uh, here today, but you've stirred up some real stinky shit here right in my backyard. There you go, bingo. And you even dumped it on the steps of City Hall. Well, unfortunately, I wasn't there to uh, dump it back on the steps of City Hall, but my uh, allies uh, in the Organic Consumers Association, uh, Ronnie Cummins, Will Allen, and uh, others uh, were there on March 4th, when the Organic Consumers Association, representing a coalition of national and San Francisco-based groups, uh, gardening organizations, consumers union, uh, protested the fact that since 2007, the city of San Francisco has been giving away to gardeners what they've been calling free organic compost Mm -hmm. that is actually sewage sludge from San Francisco and uh, nine other counties. And uh, as you know, Peter, because I know you actually read my book, Toxic Sludge is Good for You, back in 1995, uh, all the horrible stuff that gets uh, pulled out of polluted water at sewage plants uh, ends up uh, in sewage sludge. Mm -hmm. And uh, something's got to be done with this sludge. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, 
the EPA and the big green groups have ducked this issue completely, and what is done with the sludge, with the blessing of the Environmental Protection Agency, is it is uh, given a new name, because who wants sewage sludge? Right. It's called uh, biosolids, mm-hmm. and it's now described as a uh, natural organic fertilizer, and it's hauled out to farmlands, and uh, in the case of San Francisco... In a very fraudulent, uh, misleading way, it's offered as free organic compost to area gardeners. And over the last uh, three years, uh, hundreds of uh, urban gardeners there in the Bay Area have happily taken what they assume is organic compost, the purest compost you can get because it meets the uh, strict uh, requirements of organic food growing, uh, but what they've actually been getting is uh, sewage sludge compost, and this is how uh, San Francisco and uh, these nine other counties have in part been getting rid of their toxic sludge. And uh, I have to say that even though this occurs in my backyard, until you brought it to our attention, uh, you and your, your colleagues, um, I was unaware of this, and I thought that this was just a happy little green program uh, you know, making chicken salad out of chicken shit, as they, <laughs> the, the old cliche used to go. Uh, of course, um, San Francisco loves to be called uh, the Green City, and uh, your mayor, who's now running for California lieutenant governor, loves to be called the Green Mayor. Right. And, of course, people would be confused because San Francisco actually does have a real composting program where you pick up all sorts of uh, compostable material, and you right. turn it into real organic compost. But that stuff, San Francisco sells. The well, stuff and the, that they're giving away for free is sewage sludge disguised as organic compost. And they're actually coming from different uh, places because the compost is picked up by the scavenger, the garbage company. And it actually, from everything I've seen, I actually went to their uh, sorting facility in South San Francisco and took a look at it. But they have a pretty clean operation there that uh, separates all the stuff out, and in particular with the compost material. Uh, they've been collecting that separately uh, at the curbside, I guess, for about two years now. You're talking and, about the real compost, the good stuff that I am. San Francisco collects and uh, then uh, sells for money. Yeah, they, yeah, I think San Francisco, from what I can tell and know, does a great job with that. The problem is uh, that has helped, I think, deceive San Francisco's gardeners into thinking that's what they're getting when they uh, get this free organic compost back from the city. But what that stuff is, the so-called, quote-unquote, organic biosolids compost, is uh, sewage sludge, uh, one-third, and then two-thirds are uh, materials like wood chips that have been uh, composted down in Merced uh, from the sewage sludge of San Francisco and nine other counties. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what, uh, and it's toxic, it's hazardous, uh, it contains uh, all sorts of naughty stuff. Well, well, go ahead and break it down for us. What is in there? People know what they flush down their toilets, so they have a pretty good idea that uh, it's not limited to human waste, but it also includes all of the byproducts and the toxins that are in our human waste. Well, it's really... Um, impossible to know what's in sewage sludge because imagine this everything that goes down the sewer absolutely everything uh pesticides heavy metals viruses bacteria 
PCBs, DDT, dialdrin, uh, petroleum products, uh, literally uh, tens of thousands of uh, synthetic uh, chemicals uh, is then uh, on its way in the water to the sewage plant. The sewage plant pulls as much as it can out of that water, and that's what ends up in the toxic sludge. But all that the sludge companies are really required to look for are uh, nine metals. Hmm. And so, you know, we know that uh, last year, the city of San Francisco, in its own testing, found uh, dioxins in its sewage sludge. And uh, anyone who's familiar with uh, Agent Orange, this is the really nasty birth defect-causing chemical uh, in Agent Orange. You don't want to put that on your garden. That's what is in the San Francisco sludge that they contribute to this so-called uh, organic compost, and that's just one of the uh, literally thousands of potential hazardous materials. This stuff is, is inadequately tested, and that's part of the whole scam, the biosolid scam that I exposed uh, back in 1995. Uh, the EPA isn't interested in uh, preventing exposure to this. The EPA is promoting exposure to this. Because way back when uh, tens of billions of public dollars went into building sewage plants, um, the, they had a real problem. These sewage plants don't, you know, make all this horrible toxic stuff go away. They pull it out of the water and put it in the sludge. So what do you do with the sludge? Well, what EPA decided to do is rename it biosolids and begin pushing it off to farms and gardens out of sight, out of mind. And, what, and the city of San Francisco has taken this massive fraudulent toxic scam to new heights by actually uh, calling this stuff uh, organic compost and giving it to gardeners. Well, and Tyrone Zhu, a spokesman for the Public Utilities Commission in San Francisco, is quoted in the Chronicle as saying, we are giving away highly treated, heat-pasteurized biosolids. It's been tested for metals and pathogens and is basically sterile. Um, how, many, how many errors in those two sentences there, John? Well, it has been tested for some metals. They do some testing for pathogens. Note he didn't talk about testing for dioxins, PCBs, uh, nemocides, pesticides, heptachlor, lindane, all this stuff that's been around forever that... They uh, test for, I think it's, it's nine metals, and uh, they sterilize it. Well, I, I, I just find this uh, outrageous. It's not like we're talking about a little bit of material where you autoclave it and uh, sterilize it. Uh, I think San Francisco alone has, has uh, generated and given away, uh, you see different figures, and you see different figures out of the PUC, uh, but let me use one figure I've seen, 80,000 tons a year. Can you imagine uh, sterilizing 80,000 tons a year of this stuff? And uh, this is all handled by um, a company called uh, Sinegro, owned uh, now by the Carlyle Group, at its uh, Merced facility. Uh, and as I said, they're taking not just the San Francisco sludge, which we know from the PUC's own testing is contaminated with dioxins, and that's the tip of the iceberg. They're also taking from uh, nine other counties that, frankly, 
uh, have more industry and more pesticide runoff uh, mm -hmm. than is likely from San Francisco. So, you know, what Mr. Jew is basically doing here is painting a happy face on uh, a hazardous giveaway program that has scammed gardeners in San Francisco into contaminating their own garden plots. And what the Organic Consumers Association wants is for uh, mayor and candidate for Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom and the Public Utility Commission to not only put a permanent halt to this project, not just the temporary halt they announced when the March 4th protest was shaping up, but a permanent halt. And we're going to be working with the gardeners in the Bay Area to uh, get their gardens cleaned up. Because if they had said to these gardeners, Peter, hey, by the way, how would you like some toxic sewage sludge to grow your food in? <laughs> There might have been one guy who would have stepped forward and said, yeah, man, that's cool. <laughs> um, you know. And, and chances are he wasn't going to eat what he grows. No, although uh, Mayor Newsom <laughs> responded on March 4th, uh, probably at the prompting of uh, Tyrone and others, that uh, this is safe and he would certainly eat food grown in uh, toxic sewage sludge. So... Uh, I think, uh, you know, maybe maybe it's time to send the mayor a care package. Now, Mr. Jew's comment here includes the phrase, heat pasteurized biosolids. Right. Now, I don't claim to be nearly as expert as you, but I worked in uh, high school during the summer <laughs> on a, a bottling line where we uh, produced a chocolate beverage that had to be pasteurized. Uh -huh. All right. And, and was there sewage sludge in that? Then no, there was no sludge. I can no, I can no viruses and bacteria that you flush down your toilet in that? No, but okay, just, just uh, it took 20 minutes of cooking this stuff at a high temperature in a huge pressurized cooker called a ret re retort. I think that's what it was. Mm -hmm. It was this big thing, you know, the size of a tractor trailer trailer and uh, you put the, you know, cases of beverage in there. Yeah. And you had to cook this stuff. So it's not just, uh, you know, it's moving down the line and you put a infrared light on it and that cooks it. It, it takes quite a bit yeah. to fully pasteurize something. Yeah. So this uh, phrase, heat pasteurized biosolids, is either uh, a lie or Mr. Tyrone Jew is just not uh, technically skilled to use these types of terms. Well, I do not want to accuse Mr. Jew of lying. It's like, you know, we used to say about Lyndon Johnson during the Vietnam War. He never lied to us. He just fooled us. It's a situation where there's no, uh, you know, one definition of heat pasteurized. What they're doing here, apparently, is they're heating this sewage sludge compost up to about 130 degrees for a certain amount of time. But what is it they're heating? What you just described, Peter, was a process to ensure food quality through pasteurization. Mm -hmm. You weren't starting with sewage sludge that had salmonella pathogens, E. coli pathogens. I mean, let's talk about shit and crap and blood and medical waste. That's what goes into sewers and ends up in sewage sludge. Um, and also, we're talking about tens of thousands of tons of material. I think, Peter, uh, that, uh, you know, you being... Uh, a fantastic journalist, as I know you are. It's been a pleasure to be on your programs and, and get to know you. You may want to, at some point, uh, contact the Synagrove plant down at Merced and ask for an up-close and personal inspection of uh, just how they uh, prepare this compost and heat pasteurize it. The thing to remember, too, is that um, 
obviously they're not uh, able to kill 100% of these pathogens. And the interesting thing about fungi and mold and bacteria and viruses is, guess what? They grow back. So you get this compost, you get it wet, you put it in your shed, it sits there in the heat. You think that stuff is growing? I mean, I, I had lunch uh, last week with a uh, Cornell scientist. Uh, actually, it was breakfast. And uh, we were talking about this statement of Mr. Jews, and he just rolled his eyes and he said, the viruses alone, I sure wouldn't want my kids putting uh, their hands into this stuff. And yet that's exactly what happens. Mm-hmm. So-called uh, organic biostolids compost that San Franciscans have been thinking has something to do with organic food production, the good organic, uh, is, is uh, taken by the bucketful because if it's the real stuff, real organic compost, you can't put too much of that in your garden. And if you're an urban gardener, organic compost is slow to make and very expensive to buy. And then you hear the city is giving you organic biosolids compost for free, well, like the front page of the San Francisco Chronicle showed last week, you've got people filling up as many buckets as they can take to the PUC's giveaway with what they think is organic compost and hauling it home and dumping it on their garden. They don't know what they're doing to their garden. They're, they're putting hazardous material and toxic waste on their garden. But, you know, thanks to the Organic Consumers Association, they're finding out. Now, John, uh, this is a serious question. Has anybody done any studies on uh, the retention in biosolid waste of pharmaceuticals that were ingested by the humans who then, uh, in the normal course of their business, uh, output that? And it seems like half of San Francisco's on Prozac and another 10% are doing Abilify, too. Uh, And we also have the uh, people who are using antibiotics, that produces a background level of these drugs and then is recycled uh, through this process. So do we end up, if we grow vegetables with this uh, allegedly organic, uh, uh, partly treated waste, um, do we end up recycling some of the pharmaceuticals that are commonly used? Well, the quick answer to that from me as a layman is yes. Uh, There are now studies, and I'm not a scientist, but I've, I've seen some of them, uh, peer-reviewed published studies showing that indeed what you just described, uh, the drugs that people take are ending up in the waste. And of course, so are the uh, hormone imitators. They're ending up in the waste. They're ending up in the toxic sewage sludge, which the city is calling uh, organic biosolids compost and giving away to uh, gardeners in the Bay Area. Yeah, exactly. And You know, when I wrote Toxic Sludge is Good for You uh, back in 1995, and that was the first uh, reporting that really exposed this huge scam, uh, the the ability to test at appropriate levels for, for instance, medical waste uh, wasn't really there. There's now uh, a a highly sophisticated uh, ability to test for more and more of what's in the sludge, which is exactly why the city is not testing. Mm-hmm. And the city passes the buck and says, the EPA doesn't require us testing for that stuff. And the reason the EPA doesn't require it is because the EPA has promoted this way of disposing of toxic sewage sludge 
out of sight, out of mind. In fact, uh, there are people all across the country who, especially in rural areas where this stuff ends up on farms, who've been seriously uh, hurt. Their animals have gotten sick and died. Uh, they've gotten sick and died. This stuff is in the courts. It's being fought all over. Uh, but this is out in rural areas like, you know, rural California, uh, rural Missouri, rural Pennsylvania. Uh, what's frankly good about this situation in San Francisco is that because San Francisco claims to be the greenest city in the nation, uh, and because uh, your mayor claims to be the greenest mayor in the nation, uh, the fact that this scam dumping hazardous material into city gardens, fooling people into taking it as organic compost, is happening in San Francisco, is wonderfully elevating this issue nationally. So the AP story on the March 4th demonstration by the Organic Consumers Association uh, was with photos in the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, the New York Times, excellent AP article. Um, this whole thing, you had mentioned not hearing much about it, uh, the first formal complaint with the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission was filed way back in September of 2009 by the Center for Food Safety. And at that time, an article appeared in the Chronicle. And then the Public Utilities Commission's uh, Citizen Advisory Committee, uh, dealing with sewage, uh, held a hearing on that petition. The petition was to ask the city to stop uh, this uh, giveaway program. Uh, rather than stopping it, the city, according to an Atlantic Monthly article published December 1st, 2009, responded by saying, we're going to increase this giveaway uh, tenfold. And that's when the Organic Consumers Association, on whose advisory board I sit and who has been making this an issue for months, decided, no, you're not. We're going to step in here. And they began, uh, Organic Consumers Association in February, began approaching gardening groups, environmental groups, uh, environmental health groups in uh, San Francisco, got a sign-on letter to the mayor saying, we want this program stopped and we want these contaminated gardens cleaned up. And then this very visible protest on uh, March 4th, uh, in fact, uh, you know, really shut it down. In fact, um, on uh, March 3rd, and you can find this uh, easily online, uh, just uh, Google for the uh, San Francisco Public Utilities Commission and look for the SourceWatch uh, article. Uh, on March 3rd, uh, KCBS there in San Francisco mm -hmm. did a fantastic investigative piece on the eve of the protest. Uh, really exposing uh, this uh, scam. Now, John, this has also brought you and your colleagues into conflict with the Mother Teresa of the organic food movement, and uh, you may have a lifetime ban at Chez Panisse. You'll never be able to get a table there. <laughs> uh, but Alice Waters is uh, the doyen, really, of uh, uh, organic food, and she's been quite an evangelist. And it turns out that she has a foundation that has been used to pay for her pilot programs in the Berkeley schools, where they have gardens at the schools that grow vegetables that are then served uh, in the school lunch program. And that foundation is chaired by uh, a woman named Francesca Vitor, who is also a commissioner on the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission. And uh, Alice Waters was featured just last week 
uh, on the Bill Maher show, a very fawning interview, un- 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 unusual for him. Um, and uh, so tell us a little bit about how the connection between Waters and Vitor has led to some, uh, a little bit of uh, snarling from the Waters camp. Well, this, this has been uh, very interesting, and, and I would even use the word uh, unfortunate. Um, indeed, the uh, vice president of the Public Utilities Commission in San Francisco is uh, Francesca Vieter. And uh, Francesca uh, has uh, been a uh, philanthropist and activist and political activist in the Bay Area uh, of uh, local renown for decades. Uh, Willie Brown uh, tapped her to head his first, uh, the city's first environmental department. Um, and uh, Francesca Vieter was appointed to the Public Utilities Commission in uh, 2008. Um, and then uh, I know of Francesca because I know her husband, who uh, you and other people might know, uh, the Nation Magazine's uh, environmental editor and uh, the book author, Mark Hertzgard. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, in early March, uh, I took a look at who are these uh, public utility commission commissioners. There's only five of them. They're all appointed by the mayor. And I was really floored to see that uh, Francesca was one of them, in fact, the vice president of the commission. So I began a little uh, email exchange with her and uh, said, look, Francesca, you could be a real hero uh, by uh, putting a stop to this. Uh, By the time I uh, did that, it actually turned out that uh, the upcoming uh, Organic Consumers Association protest already had uh, the city announcing they were putting this on temporary hold. but And I, I wrote a blog also about uh, how this is interesting that Francesca Vieter, who had sent me uh, promotional material in response uh, from the Public Utilities Commission and from uh, the sludge industry, uh, was the executive director of the Chez Panisse Foundation, and that it seemed to me to be a real conflict because on one hand, she's the vice president of the Public Utilities Commission, the agency that has been in charge of uh, this uh, fraudulent uh, campaign giving away toxic sewage sludge as organic compost. She's been the vice president of that. On the other hand, in her new job, which she started in February as executive director of Alice Waters Shea Panisse Foundation, as you say, their primary program is to promote organic edible schoolyard gardens, get the kids learning about food by growing organic gardens. And this Mm -hmm. is fantastic. But, you know, in organic gardens, it's totally illegal, if you're going to sell that organic food as organic, to use sewage sludge to grow food. So, obviously, this appeared to be quite uh, confusing, and the Organic Consumers Association uh, sent Alice Waters and the Chez Panisse Foundation a letter asking Alice, who is, uh, for good reason, uh, a celebrity icon in the world of natural and organic food and growing organic gardens, uh, we asked uh, Alice Waters and Chez Panisse Foundation to please, Alice, uh, speak out, take the same stand on growing food in sludge that you took with uh, genetically engineered foods. Just say no. Uh, We asked Alice to say that uh, no food should be grown in toxic sewage sludge. And unfortunately, uh, 
Alice uh, didn't do that and uh, won't do that for whatever reason. And so on uh, April 1st, the uh, 30th anniversary of uh, her Chez Panisse Cafe, uh, the Organic Consumers Association uh, set up a very uh, mild and friendly uh, informational ticket for uh, the public. Uh, there, was, uh, there were two people holding a banner that read, uh, Happy Birthday Chez Panisse Cafe with cake on the banner. Please, Alice, uh, no toxic sludge. And uh, apparently this has just ignited the fury of uh, a lot of uh, people who think uh, that we should not be uh, um, in any way uh, questioning or criticizing uh, Alice Waters when all we're doing is asking Alice to take the public position that no food should be grown in toxic sewage sludge. I mean, already, as I say, it's illegal to grow organic food in toxic sewage sludge. And Alice is such a respected leader on this, we were shocked when she didn't take that position. Um, but as we've been discussing, the executive director of her Chez Panisse Foundation is uh, Francesca Vieter, and, and then, uh, who's the vice president of the Public Utilities Commission, the agency giving this stuff away. And then it took another turn when last week uh, the uh, Francesca... Uh, sent uh, a uh, legal complaint to the London Guardian. Uh, we, the London Guardian uh, ran an excellent article, I think it ran on April 1st, uh, the UK Guardian, uh, about this whole issue, and Francesca Vieter uh, sent a, a legal complaint of some sort to the Guardian, and the Guardian responded by putting an announcement up on that article, which is their standard op operating procedure, that uh, Francesca Vieter has filed a legal complaint about the information in this article. I've read the article. It's an excellent article. Um, so uh, it's, it's become a very interesting uh, situation. And if you go on uh, the uh, food blogosphere, uh, a lot of people have been hammering at uh, the Organic Consumers Association uh, for, uh, you know, uh, raising this issue with, Alice Waters, but really uh, Alice Waters and her Chez Panisse Foundation were drawn into it because uh, the executive director, the new executive director of her mm -hmm. foundation, is Francesca Vieter. And actually, on February 9th, um, the Organic Consumers Association asked the Chez Panisse Foundation to sign on with all sorts of other gardening and environmental groups and uh, organizations like Consumers Union the letter to Mayor Newsom asking that this program be stopped and that the gardens that were uh, received the toxic sludge be cleaned up. And on February 10th, uh, Francesca Vieter responded for the Chez Panisse Foundation declining to participate in this letter. So uh, there's an interesting situation here, and I think it, it uh, primarily results from the fact that uh, Francesca Vieter serves two masters. Uh, Mayor Newsom, who appointed her and said he'd be happy to eat food grown in sludge, and he stands by the program. And uh, Alice Waters, who's uh, uh, named her head of uh, her Chez Panisse Foundation, promoting organic gardens where you better not be using toxic sludge to grow your food. 
Now, John, uh, maybe this is an appropriate investigation for your colleagues where you used to work at the Center for Media and Democracy. They have the PR Watch uh, Newswire, or it's kind of a wiki uh, setup. And I would just like to investigate to find out if Alice Waters and Francesca Vietor are using the same crisis PR firm as the Pope. (laughs) (laughs) Because, I mean, you know, here they're trying to demonize the messengers when you have asked them to help uh, clean up this mess. And it's in their best interests, it's in the community's best interests, yet somehow they've taken this in a very personal way, and uh, they've circled their organic wagons uh, to hunker down and uh, attack uh, the Organic Consumers Association for what appears to be a very honorable effort that you've made. Well, the, the irony, too, is that uh, Alice Waters is now uh, in the media in a major way every day. She's got a new book out. She really is an icon, a celebrity, and has a well-deserved reputation as a tremendous uh, longtime uh, promoter and teacher in this area of growing organic foods. Um, and all she would really have to do to get this uh, monkey off her back is say, you know, I oppose growing any foods in sewage sludge. That's all we asked her in uh, our letter. Uh, But for whatever reason, she refuses to do that, and so she's just constantly begging the question, Alice, why won't you publicly oppose growing food in toxic sewage sludge? Well, and you you use monkey on your back as a metaphor, and it just (laughs) reminded me at the San Francisco Zoo... There is one uh, orangutan, and his name is Buana. And uh, he has to be controlled because he his favorite sport is to poop in his hand and then throw it at uh, visitors to the zoo. <laughs> so he seems to be poised as the perfect spokesperson for one side of this battle. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying very hard uh, not to get into uh, a back and forth with uh the uh, Chez Panisse Foundation. Our focus at Organic Consumers Association now is on forcing Mayor Newsom and the Public Utilities Commission to put a permanent halt to this uh, program of giving away toxic sewage sludge as uh, organic compost. They put the program on temporary hold because of the criticism, but they refuse to so far uh, halt it permanently. And the other thing we want is Hundreds of urban gardeners in San Francisco don't even know it yet, but they were tricked into taking the city's toxic sewage sludge and putting it into their garden, Mm -hmm. and they thought they were getting the best stuff you could ever put on your garden, real organic compost. So, you know, this issue is uh, not going to go away, and uh, I would urge uh, your listeners to go to... uh, the website of the Organic Consumers Association. Uh, The website is organicconsumers.org, and uh, get involved with this. Or, you know, this is the age of Google. Just uh, Google Toxic Sludge San Francisco, and uh, you'll find uh, all sorts of uh, articles and websites. But, you know, you have to also realize that while this fight is happening in San Francisco, This is really a huge national effort 
That's what we need to stop the building of sewage plants. Why is that? Because sewage plants don't solve the problem of dealing with uh, human waste, home waste, industrial waste. They were built at a cost of hundreds of billions of public dollars to pull the toxins that we dump in the water out of the water and just move it over to the sludge. Mm -hmm. You know, there are sophisticated ways now to deal with waste. Human shit, for instance, really can be a good compost, but not if you flush it down the sewer and mix it with uh, the dioxins and the PCBs and the medical waste and the uh, drug uh, residues. And well, we, we have a lot of pesticide uh, uh, effluent that's in our uh, river water, Oh, yeah. And when you talk about uh, collecting this sludge from nine different counties, yeah. then uh, the pesticide issue is very real. Yeah. Uh, so when, when Tyrone Jude defends the safety of this stuff, um, as far as I've been able to tell, uh, none of these other nine counties are testing for anything at all. And as you say, uh, we're talking heavy metals, industry, and I don't have to tell people in California how many toxic pesticides, nemicides, fungicides, herbicides are ending up in down the drain and in, into sewage. So that's, that's the source of the quote-unquote organic biosolids compost that the PUC is giving away free and has, has uh, duped people into dumping into their garden. Well, John, great to talk with you. Thanks for clearing up this shit. And uh, check your boots, okay? Okay. And uh, <laughs> listen, uh, what can I say, Peter? It's always fantastic being on your program. And you might want to uh, take a little investigative trip down to... Uh, yeah, Cinegro. Uh, well, you mentioned, you mentioned that it's owned by the Carlisle Group, and I'm looking for the secret munitions plant that's under the sludge. <laughs> John Stauber, thank you very much. Again, the website, organicconsumers.org. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Peter B. Collins Show. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling